Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Surprise Jab Podcast. I'm your host, Zachary Ruger, surprising you with new topics every single week and jabbing you with your daily dose of UFC information. Boy, do we have a fun episode today. We are coming off the high that was UFC 293. I also had a very good weekend overall. Went to some parties, watched some football, just had a had a blast, and of course, watched UFC 293. We'll get the elephant out of the room right now. Sean Strickland is the new UFC middleweight champion of the world. Absolutely insane. That's one of the biggest upsets I've ever seen. Well, it wasn't the most entertaining fight besides round one and maybe the last 30 seconds when Sean Strickland was starting to realize he's becoming the new champion. It, it was a decent event overall. I uh, went three and two on my main card picks, but um, we'll be getting on into all of that later when I give a full review of UFC 293. We're also going to be talking about the new Godzilla Monarch Legacy of Monsters or something, some new show coming to Apple TV. We're going to touch on that a bit. We are back with a surprise topic this week. We'll be revealing that later in the episode. Of course, um, talking about NFL Week 1, we do still have the Bills and Jets game tonight. Uh, That is Monday, September 11th, uh, 2023. A quick moment of silence, if you will, for um, just 9-11. I mean, just another year passes. We all just remembered the tragedy that was 9-11. There's still mysteries that surround that, which uh, is actually kind of connecting mysteries to our uh, surprise topic. But yes, it is a sad day, but a happy day because, um, you know, we're alive. God's great. We're in America. Let's go. But but yes, as I was mentioning, the Bills and Jets play tonight. I'm picking the Bills. I still have that etched down. I'll be giving a full breakdown of sorts. Of, just not a full breakdown, but just recapping week one of sorts. Talking a bit about fantasy football performances, what happened on my team's. And yeah, we'll be going over a bunch of stuff. Uh, Kicking off, as always, some recent UFC news. A new fight was announced between Alex Morono and Joaquin Buckley for the October 7th card at the UFC Apex. Both of these are very talented. Welterweight's not currently ranked like them both. That should be an exciting fight. But the big news that came out this morning comes from Kusan Ashkabov, who is currently a UFC fighter in the featherweight division. I believe he actually had a fight coming up against Daniel Pineda, was actually arrested this morning. Now, this guy has 5.2 million followers on um, uh, Instagram. He is very well known. I, uh, I, I don't even know what to do with this information about I tell you. It is is just shocking, but he was arrested this morning with his twin brother on suspect, I don't even know if it's suspect, it might have been confirmed, for, this happened in Thailand, by the way, for torturing a man and stealing over $300,000 worth of his belongings. They kidnapped him, tortured him, then stole almost all of his money. He was uh, found arrested, there are photos of it, They, uh, him and his brother, they apparently tortured him to gain access to his bank account. They also stole a Rolex from him, a paddock watch, a MacBook, an iPhone, some some expensive sunglasses. They stole his passport. They stole all his debit cards. And speaking of um, Alex Morono and Joaquin Buckley fighting on October 7th, Kusan was supposed to fight on that card as well. He will most likely be in jail. This is absolutely stunning. He had previously been 23-0 undefeated before losing his UFC debut to Jamal Emmers earlier this summer. Uh, earlier this year, I mean. And th- this was just 
insane news to hear that a current fighter who was supposed to fight in less than a month was just arrested. I, I, I wish that he gets prosecuted. I hope he goes to jail. That is just insane. I, I don't even know if I'm supposed to be talking about it, but I mean, just shocking information. But we'll get past that to move into some news. I mean, or into the podcast in general, but just a shocking way to wake up this morning. Um, gosh, how, how has my day been? What have I done? Slept in late as usual. On my days, I don't have class. I always, I always stay up too late. I'm always watching Kill Tony, man. I love Kill Tony with a Tony Hinchcliffe. Brings up comedians. It's on YouTube. You know, uh, Joe Rogan, his club. That's where they have the event at, the Comedy Mothership in Austin, Texas. Very much enjoy watching that show. I would love to go to uh, a live taping of it. Hopefully, whenever I have time and money to travel to Texas, heck yeah, I'll be down to do that, but... Let's get into some of our staples of the show, as we'll be re- previewing, I should say. I'm either reviewing or previewing, it feels like. Previewing Dana White's Contender Series Season 7, Episode 6. That is right. We're already on Episode 6 of this season. I can't believe it. It uh, should be a good one. I did not do well on my predictions last week for Dana White's Contender Series, but we got some interesting fights this time around. So, without ado... Let's dive in to Suppression Podcast. Do I even say that? Or do we just dive into this segment, if you will? So, season uh, season seven, episode six goes down tomorrow, Tuesday, uh, September twelfth. Wow, already September twelfth. Can you believe it? We get five fights. All five, uh, all ten fighters, I should say, for the five fights made weight this morning in six minutes. Absolutely crazy. Just boom, 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 right to the scale. You love to see it. They were all prepared. So, five fights. I gave my little, I'll give a little spiel about them that I'll predict who I think is going to win. You guys know how it is if you've been here. But if you don't, that's how we do it. So, let's get into it. Kicking us off, we are in the men's bantamweight division as we have Gene Matsumoto taking on Casey with a K Tanner. No nicknames for either man. Gene, 13 and 0. Casey, 6 and 0. We got two undefeated fighters. Someone's O has got to go. Casey's got an inch in height at 5'7 to 5'6. He's also got an inch in reach, 69 inches to 68. Gene Matsumoto is from Brazil, 24 years old, currently already 13 0. Very impressive. Three KOs and five submissions to his name. Love to see it. He has an orthodox stance. Um, I don't have much to say. He He's really good on the ground. Also good on the feet. Gene Matsumoto. Now, as for Casey Tanner, he's from Illinois of the United States of America. Currently fighting out of Scottsdale, Arizona. The 6-0, 31-year-old fighter fights out of the same gym as Henry Cejudo at Fight Ready MMA. Trains with um, Tracy Cortez. Trains with all sorts of fighters down in that region. But Henry Cejudo, the most notable name from that gym, very much why I'm going to ride with him actually despite Gene being 13 and 0 I watched last week a 13 or like an 11-0 fighter get knocked out by someone so clearly records don't matter and knowing that Casey has experience he's a good grappler trains with Henry Cejudo he has two knockouts two submissions to his name I'm gonna go with Casey Tanner by decision but Gene Matsumoto ladies and gentlemen 13 and 0 at 24 years old eight of those 
have been finishes. Very exciting uh, opening fights. And yeah, bantamweight fights rarely disappoint, especially on the Contender Series. Moving into our second fight of the evening, we're in the women's strawweight division, the ever-rare women's fight on the Contender Series. Dana White loves getting new women on the roster, so let's check out these ladies. As we got Julia Polastri taking on Patricia Alujas, Julia the Dragon Polastri, Patricia the Angel Alujas. Julia is 11-3, and three, Patricia 9-2. Julia five foot two, Patricia five foot four. Patricia's got an inch in reach as well, sixty four to sixty three. So a bit of size to Patricia, but nothing really too well. Julia five foot two, very short, very short woman. Julia actually fought on the Contender series on season five, episode three, back in twenty twenty one. She lost to Jasmine Jasu Davicious. Jasmine Jesu Davicious. I don't know if that's how you pronounce her name. She's currently 3-1 in the UFC, coming off a big win over Miranda Maverick in uh, Canada. That's where she's from. And she has a big fight against number 14-ranked Tracy Cortez, actually, this upcoming Saturday at UFC Noche, the Mexican Independence-themed UFC event, which we'll be covering in full later in the week. But yes, Julia, that's her only... Um, Loss um, since that. She's gone on a three-fight win streak. Uh, she's 25 years old from Brazil. Four KOs and two subs of her, uh, was it nine or ten? What I just I just said it, of her 11 victories. So she likes to get the finish when she can. But yes, her only loss was to Jasmine, and Jasmine just outgrappled her through uh, three rounds, eight minutes of control time on four takedowns. As for Patricia, she is actually from Paraguay. I have never heard of a UFC fighter from Paraguay, so I find that very fascinating. She's 27 years old, currently on a five-fight win streak of her nine victories, four by knockout, two by submission. Look, Patricia, this is this is going to come as an oddball prediction. I'm actually going to go with Patricia by submission. We'll say in round one to spice it up. I was like putting out the spicy round one, round two finishes. The angel, Patricia. I'm riding with an angel over a dragon for any of my biblical folks. We know who wins in the end, the angels. I always love doing weird things. But yeah, I feel like it'd be cool to get a Paraguay fighter on the card. Julia clearly got out grappled by Jasmine. I think Patricia could give her some issues. That's my prediction for that fight. But hey, you know Julia, she's fought some good competition. A bit more experience. And she's been on the Contender Series. She know what she knows what it entails. I should phrase that as. Moving into our third fight of the evening, of our Tuesday evening, which I love. Pretty much all my Tuesday, pretty much all my weeknights are full now with something to do, uh, giving me little time to DoorDash. I've been trying to DoorDash some more. I went out, made like fifty bucks in two hours. Super good uh, Friday, but I'm trying to afford some money. Some spare change to go to the UFC event in uh, Minneapolis, December 2nd. So hopefully hopefully that is going to be a good main event. I'm hoping for some good fight, but not to sidetrack us too much. Stephen Huynh versus AJ Cunningham in the men's featherweight division is up next. Stephen the Ninja win AJ the Savage Cunningham. Ooh. Steven is 8 and 1, AJ 10 and 2. Steven 5 foot 11, AJ 5 foot 10, 73 inch reach for Steven, 71 inch reach for AJ. Switch fighter for Steven and orthodox for AJ Cunningham. So a bit of size for Steven, nothing nothing too um, noticeable. 
I'll tell you what is noticeable. This is actually Stephen's third time on the Contender Series. I kid you not, his third attempt to get into the UFC. His first one um, on Season 3, Episode 6, back in July, back in July of 2019, he got knocked out by a flying knee by Aylan Cruz in round number 3 with 20 seconds left. Tough going for him. Last time out, Season 5, Episode 4. Back in September of 2021, he would beat Theo Relang by unanimous decision, but not enough to impress Dana White, unfortunately. Steven, he is um, currently on a two-fight win streak fighting out of Kansas. It is Kansas of the United States of America. He trains at Fortis MMA under Sayuf Saad, very um, prolific gym. They have Alex Morono, who we mentioned earlier, Ryan Spann, who recently was in the co-main. Uh, at uh, UFC Singapore, Diego Ferreira, ranked lightweight, Jeff Neal, top 10 welterweight, Alonzo Menfield, top 15 light heavyweight, Steven trains with some very, very good competition. Not competition, I should just say fighters in general. He's 8-1, his only loss was that Aylan Cruz knockout, and that was a very close fight. Might I add, Steven actually um, beat him in round one, Aylan got him in round two, and Steven was probably losing round three before he got knocked out, but hey, He's back, he's better than ever, and he's here to take on the savage A.J. Cunningham, 10-2 and two at 29 years of age. He's from Arkansas, the United States, southern part for any of my international listeners. Of his 10 victories, 3 by knockout, 4 by submission, he's currently riding a 3-fight win streak. A.J., I am sorry, but I'm giving it to Stephen Wynn by, we'll say, round two knockout. Really hoping Stephen can get the win here, just knowing the fact that this is his third attempt on the contender series shows me that Dana really wants to give him the opportunity, thinks he belongs, but just needs him to show just one more time he can do it. Plus, he trains with some absolutely great fighters. Sayyid Saad is an amazing MMA, um, I would say coach, but just a mind. He has a great MMA mind for the art of mixed martial arts, and I really do believe Stephen Wynn can get it done here. Plus, his only loss was on the contender series, so he clearly has the um, skills to not lose at to, to lower-ranked people, however I'm phrasing it. We'll go Stephen Wynn in round number two by knockout. In our co-main, as I always say, if you want to call it that, it's not officially the co-main event, just the fourth fight, second to last of the evening. Giant, oh my gosh, J-H-O-N-A-T-A, Denise. Hanata Denise, I got it. It's Hanata Denise versus Eduardo Neves. I, I knew I was going to get the name. Um, Eduardo Bebazo Neves. Hanata Denez does not have a nickname, but maybe he will after he wins. Hanata is 5-0, Eduardo 7-1. Uh, Hanato 6-4, Eduardo 6-2. Hmm. Both some big boys in the heavyweight division. 79-inch reach for Denez, 78 inches for Neves. Both uh, orthodox fighters, both similar. Pretty much just a bit more experience for Eduardo. Renato Denez um, from Brazil, 32 years of old, uh, 32 years of old, of age. Um, 5 and 0, all five of his wins by knockout. Not really much to hear from him. Knockout artist. Uh, finished all of his fights in the first two rounds, or maybe even round one from what I'm seeing. They, um, they have him listed as a couple wins by retirement, so I don't know what Sheer Dog's referring to by that, but tapeology. But those are some of the sites I use. But 
there's that. As for Eduardo Neves, we do have some stuff to uh, pick off from him. This is his second time on the Contender Series. Eduardo Neves, this will be his second time on Dana White's Contender Series. He lost last season on Episode 5, Season 6, to Mick Parkin. Got submitted in round number one via rear naked chokehold. 23-year-old from Brazil. Seven uh, KOs of his seven wins, currently on a two-fight win streak. That McParkin loss, I mean, it was a chaotic two minutes that the fight went on. Both men landed to both men landed two takedowns. Eduardo was actually winning on the feet. Mick unfortunately got a hold of him, and that was that. The night was over. Simply due to that, I'm going to go with Eduardo Neves. I think Eduardo Neves can get it done. He landed multiple takedowns on McParkin. Mc Mick is just a very talented fighter, Mick Parkin, um, I should be saying. He is 7-0. He actually won his UFC debut. Uh, he is from England. He won his UFC debut at Aspinall versus Tibera in UFC uh, London. So definitely a talented fighter. As for Hinata Dinez, only 5-0. Not much to know from him at 32 years of old. Of old. I keep saying that of age. I, is there like... That, that just sounds so grammatically incorrect. I just have to go back to it. Because there's some things that I can skip over if I say wrong. But of of old, that just it just sounds like I'm talking about a grandparent or something. But we're going to go with Eduardo Neves by round one knockout. He's younger. More knockouts. Fought tougher competition. That's, that's all I can say. There's just not much to take from these guys. They all are contenders. So we'll see what happens from them. But let's get into our final fight of the evening, which is always labeled as the best fight of the night. And it usually is. It usually does not disappoint. This time around, to close out episode six of season seven, we have James Lontop, James Goku Lontop, versus Malik Hardnock Lewis. Ooh. James is 13-2. and two. Malik is 6-1. and one. This will be Malik's second time on the Contender Series. He was knocked out by Trevor Peak on uh, Episode 6, uh, or Season 6, Episode 8. In Round number 2, he was landing some good takedowns on Trevor Peak. Landed 4 of 8. But um, Trevor Peak was able to sling it together and beat him on the feet. So um, there's that. Uh, 73 inch reach for James, 75 inch reach. So Malik just a bit in here, bit in bit reach, bit in reach. James is actually from Peru, 13 and 2 on an 11 fight winning streak. Wow, at only 24 years of old of, of age, I keep saying it. I'm gonna, I'm good. Oh man, seven knockouts and one sub of his 13 victories. James is a force coming out of Peru. As for Malik, 27 years of age, 27 years old. I, I don't even know how I'm going to say it. I'm just going to say they're 27 years old. That's how I should phrase it. Um, coming off of one win before that was his loss to Trevor Peak. He is from Texas of his six victories, five by knockout, one by submission. Look, Malik, I know you only lost, you lost Trevor Peak, who's a very good UFC fighter. However, I just think James has his number. He's from Peru. He's younger. He is on a incredible run 11 fights I mean eight of those have been finishes just hey I'm gonna ride with uh, James Lonthrope by uh, we'll go round one submission just for the degenerate gamblers out there I was like picking the longest odds on the contender series because one time I've actually hit I mean I don't actually put down money but I predicted this guy named Zach Reese to get round one submission and he did and that's how I took first in a verdict poll or verdict event picking whatever it is I don't know but that's your breakdown for uh, Dana West Contender Series, uh, Season 7, Episode 6. 
Should be some good fights going down tomorrow night. I'll make sure to catch them. But to recap my picks, we're going to go with Casey Tanner by unanimous decision. We're going to go with Patricia Lujas by submission. Steven Huynh by knockout. Eduardo Neves by submission. And we'll go with James Lontop by submission. I always like going with the submission picks. They're, they're more fun. I mean, because the odds, actually, knockouts and submissions, they're both 50-50. Who's going to get what? So it's very fun to pick. But yes, that's uh, that's the breakdown for episode six. I mean, it doesn't matter too much. It's just Dana White's contender series. But I always love Dana's reactions when he doesn't like a fight. I think it's more funny than when he actually likes a fight. So, I mean, I'll, I'll be interested to watch it tomorrow night. But, I mean, moving on to something else besides Dana White's Contender Series. Dana can't take up all of our podcast time. We got a new TV series from the MonsterVerse uh, universe. That's Paramount's Godzilla world. You know, uh, the film's Godzilla, Godzilla King of the Monsters, Skull, um, oh, Kong Skull Island, uh, Godzilla vs. Kong. They have a new uh, show coming out on November 17th on Apple TV Plus called Monarch Legacy of Monsters. The trailer just dropped um, a teaser, if you will, an official trailer. I don't know what they're labeling it, but it looks super good, and I'm here for it. Um, It stars Kurt Russell and Wyatt Russell. That's Kurt Russell's actual son. They're going to play the same character at different ages, which I love. Wyatt Russell uh, also played... What's a role I could give you? He played Captain America in that Falcon Winter Soldier series. Uh, what was his name? John Walker or whatever. He was supposed to replace Captain America. He was super good in that. A very good actor. So much so that people actually send him hate, hate speech in like real life, which really tells you you're you're a good actor when you have people like get mad at you about a character you portray. But yes, uh, a ton of other people from other past films, some new actors and actresses, Anna Sawai, Marie Yamamoto, Andrew Holmes, Kiersey Clemens, Ren Watabe, and also the great John Goodman make a cameo appearance, um, sort of like some hidden footage, I believe, from Kong Skull Island. He was a uh, researcher in that film, good lead in that, loved John Goodman. So here's what the official description is for the show. Let me know if this sounds interesting to you guys. It does sound interesting to me personally. So following the thunderous battle between Godzilla and the Titans that leveled San Francisco and the shocking revelation that monsters are real, Monarch Legacy of Monsters tracks two siblings following in their father's footsteps to uncover their family's connection to the secretive organization known as Monarch Clues lead them into the world of monsters and ultimately down the rabbit hole to Army Officer Lee Shaw, which is Kurt Wyatt Russell's character, old and young for both of them, taking place in the 1950s and half a century later where Monarch is threatened by what Shaw knows. The dramatic saga spanning three generations reveals buried secrets and the ways that epic earth shattering events can reverberate through our lives. This is being produced by uh, Legendary Television. And actually, um, one of the executive producers is Chris Black from the show Severance, Matt Fraction from the show Hawkeye, and um, Matt Shackman, who um, was one of the um, uh, developers, producers on Game of Thrones, is going to be directing the first two episodes. Very much love that. Sounds kind of interesting. I think it's taking place after the first Godzilla film, if I'm right, or maybe the second Godzilla film. I don't exactly know, but it certainly does look good. I always love TV series where the they're taking 
the CGI from real life blockbuster movies and putting it into a TV series. So it's going to look super, super good. Legendary's MonsterVerse franchise, uh, it began with the 2014 film Godzilla, which was super good. It was, I personally think the first Godzilla is one of the best. It feels so real. You don't see a lot of Godzilla until the end, which sort of adds this mysteriousness to him. We then got the 2017 film Kong Skull Island, which is just such a classic. I have that on DVD. It's such a rewatchable movie. It is so good. Love Kong Skull Island. Godzilla's King of the Monsters, which came out in 2019, sort of gave the fans what they wanted, which is a lot of monsters, and it almost felt like too much monsters. It was very odd. And then we had Godzilla vs. Kong in 2021. I was personally underwhelmed by the film, but still good nonetheless. And after this series, the next film in the franchise is actually Godzilla Times Kong, The New Empire, which is slated for uh, April 12th of 2024. Whew, that is going to be a very good movie. I cannot wait for that. They released a teaser, and the villain in it looks like this orangutan or something that's coming out of, um, oh my gosh, guys, what is, um, the Hollow Earth? Yes, that's what it's called, the Hollow Earth, which is like the new, um, area where Kong lives. Super, super interesting. But yes, it's going to be a 10-episode event that's what they always call these shows, events. Um, it premieres on Friday, November 17th with the, the first two episodes, as we mentioned, and then it'll be followed by one episode every Friday, ending on January 12th. Very much looking forward to this. I'm a big fan of all those movies, and I haven't really found any shows lately that have just been captivating me, just been watching YouTube. I've wanted to get back into watching The Sopranos, but after I took the whole summer off, just because I didn't really have time to watch, like, binge a show... I completely forgot everything that was going on. Then I tried to get into Arrested Development. And that's just an okay show. It's super funny, but watching YouTube's much easier. But yes, I will for sure be checking out this uh, Monarch Legacy of Monsters. But I gotta wait like two months for that. So it's, it's kind of not fun when you have to wait so long for things you're looking forward to. But that's life, I suppose. Speaking of things, I'm looking forward to UFC 5, EA Sports UFC 5, dropping some new news on us from the EA developer, an official electronic arts developer regarding the game. Very much looking forward to that. Comes out October 27th. I saw some footage of a referee stoppage, and it looks okay, and... My one worry for this game is that it's going to be an improvement from UFC 4, which I believe it will be, but it won't be exactly what we want. I feel like this game could be the next, it could be the in-between, like UFC 6 will be exactly what we want, and UFC 5 is sort of the bridge in-between. I hope that's not the case, but that that I feel like that could be the case, honestly. Uh, so I took a couple um, points recently, and um, let me tell you about them. So one interesting thing that was revealed was that you're not going to be able to pick weight classes in ranked fights online. I don't know exactly why, but I feel like this could be from someone specifically playing one fighter on a weight class over and over and over and just ranking up that way. So if it's randomized every single fight, you're more likely to try out different things, have a better chance against someone. I, I can definitely see it. Another thing is that in the UFC 5 trailer, the um, people believe they have found Hasbula in the background. They're thinking that um, he could be a playable character. I don't know if that's going to be the case, but he could definitely make um, a cameo of sorts as a ringside viewer, a cage-side viewer. I mean, he was there at Islam Makachev's fight against Charles Oliveira. 
So without a doubt, Hezbollah could be in the game. I love Hezbollah. Some people don't like him. I find him hilarious. It's He looks like a little boy, and he's like a grown man my age. It's a super weird thing. A new addition to this game, or could be coming from past games, is custom fighter entrances, such as when Israel Adesanya does one of his cool entrances, Alex Pajera doing his bow and shot thing, um, Daniel Cormier sprinting down the um, like row or whatever the entrance, and I very much like this. The entrances are definitely lacking. You get one brief glimpse of them walking, then they're getting pad down, then they're in the octagon. It's a very short thing. Which is good for people who just want to play the game, but for someone like me who truly likes to appreciate um, the realism of it, I very much will be looking forward to this feature. My most favorite news that has been revealed is that there will be over 300 plus fighters at launch. 250 of those will be unique people. The other 50 are going to be, um, what am I trying to say, alter egos, uh, playable characters that like, like such as Bruce, Bruce Buffer, Dana White, Mike Tyson, Fedor, Muhammad Ali. But hearing that we're going to be getting a ton more fighters, I'm hoping we get some new ones. I'm hoping they get rid of some. Uh, very much looking forward to that. And apparently going to be updating on a month-to-month basis as they usually do. UFC 4 did a very good job of adding fighters. They're just missing a couple right now, I'll say. They're kind of done updating this game, but... You know what? I'm still going to play it until uh, UFC 5 comes out. So very much looking forward to that. Um, Sadly for um, online fans and even just rural playing, there is no in-game voice chat. Uh, It's definitely stemming from Xbox and PlayStation's crackdown on vulgar language, I bet. Uh, However, it always is fun chirping, just roasting someone you're playing when you absolutely cook them. But then it also sucks when you get knocked down, scored on in whatever game, killed, and someone comes at you. But unfortunate feature that they're taking out um the game also will not be available on playstation 4 or xbox one this is going to be a new generation game exclusively also not available on pc currently so we're only getting that uh, xbox series x ps5 game which i love since i have a series x so i could care less if they don't put it on other platforms and lastly there will be no crossplay. no crossplay available for this game I I feel like it would be a great addition if they were to add crossplay into every game because I mean I play Rainbow Six Siege sometimes Fortnite and it's good to play with friends on PlayStation because sometimes you have people on PlayStation who you want to play with but hey it is what it is UFC Five looks like it's going to be an amazing game it will definitely be an improvement probably be the most realistic looking UFC game. I will be looking very forward to that. And what I was looking forward to all week actually went down this past weekend, even last Thursday, as the NFL is back. Week one is just about done. We only have our one game tonight, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, I'm going with Bills over Jets, if I haven't mentioned that already. We'll say 30-24 to 24 in favor of the Bills, but hey, if the Jets win, I will not come playing. It's been an interesting week. I did absolutely terrible on my predictions, I, I think I got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I got seven. I've gotten seven for eight on my predictions. Ugh, if the Bills win tonight, I'll go 500, but just atrocious. I think the best person I do like a family picks league was my mom, who got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine predictions right out of the uh, 16 games so far. So good for her. Always love when, uh, always loving your mom does better than you, right? How about that? 
but yes, a certainly interesting week one. My Minnesota Vikings did not perform well at all. The uh, Buccaneers beat us 20-17. to I don't even know how we lost that game. I mean, Kirk Cousins threw for 344 yards. Justin Jefferson caught 150 yards. Jordan Addison caught a touchdown. Uh, Alexander Madison did pretty good. He caught a touchdown, got a couple rushing yards. But, man, just nothing. I don't even know how the Bucks beat us. I, I was really so perplexed. I mean, Baker had 173 yards, two touchdowns. I guess Kirk did have a couple fumbles. I, our defense kind of let the Buccaneers go on long drives marching. Mike Evans went for 66 yards and a touchdown. Godwin had 51 yards. Uh, we really held the running game pretty well. We only held Rashad White to 39 yards on 17 carries. But, man, we're not going undefeated, but we're still winning the Super Bowl, guys. Remember, the Giants lost their first two games before beating the undefeated Patriots in the Super Bowl. Back in, oh my gosh, when was that? 2010? 2011? 2009? It's been, it's been so long, I, I forget what happens. I forget what happens. But yes, um, we'll go over all the games quickly. Um, kicking off, just because I realized that I haven't recorded one since last Thursday, is that the Lions actually beat the Chiefs. We kicked off the NFL year with a huge upset. Uh, the best fantasy performance in that game was Patrick Mahomes with 19.54 points. But man, Kadarius Tony needs to be cut. All right, he Kadarius Tony dropped like three crucial passes, just an atrocious effort from him. Uh, the best res- wide receiver for the Chiefs was Valdez Scantling. Um, wow, just kind of a bad performance from the Chiefs. But the Lions, I gotta give it to them. Lions look good, especially as being a divisional rival. I hate to see it. Goff doesn't even throw a pick. David Montgomery goes for seventy-four yards and a touchdown. Monron St. Bra, 71 yards and a touchdown. Even Josh Reynolds caught 80 yards. Uh, Sam De Laporta. Sam Laporta from uh, rookie tight end for the Chiefs. Also doing pretty good. Good for good for the Lions. I like them. But I'll tell you what did not make me happy. That was the Packers winning. Oh my gosh. Just the Bear I knew the Bears were bad. Like honestly, I, I wasn't really like riding with the Bears this year, but the Packers blew them out of the water, 38-20. to 20. Aaron Jones gets 26.7 fantasy points. This is all on ESPN, by the way. Uh, Jordan Love gets 23. And shout-out to Romeo Dobbs, who gets on only 26 yards receiving, two touchdowns. Very impressive stuff for him. Uh, but yeah, Aaron Jones was killing it. Jordan Love was killing it, throwing for three touchdowns. Respect to him. Justin Fields, supposed to be MVP caliber, supposed to be one of the top quarterbacks of the year. 216 yards, a touchdown interception, and 59 yards rushing. Not the most impressive performance. Uh, Leading wide receiver was uh, Darnell Mooney with 53 yards and a touchdown. So not too bad. Not too bad for him. Uh, So yeah, the NFC North kicking off. Lions and Packers in first, Bears and Vikings in last. Gosh darn it. And who we're taking on next weekend? The Eagles squeaked out a tough win over the Patriots, 25-20. to Leading scorer for the Eagles was their kicker, Jake Elliott, with 18 points. Devontae Smith in second with 17.7. But shout out to the Patriots, man. Wide receiver Kendrick Bourne catching 64 uh, yards, catching six passes for 64 yards, two touchdowns. Uh, Ramondre Stevenson had 64 yards receiving. Uh, Zeke, 29 yards rushing, nothing too impressive there. But Mac Jones, 316 yards, three touchdowns, a pick. 
not too shabby. Just wasn't really getting it done. Jalen Hurts just wasn't really getting it done for the Eagles. I mean, they got the win, but it was all thanks to the kicker. I, uh, I don't really know what, what to say for the Eagles, but maybe the Vikings can squeak out a win over them. I would greatly appreciate it. Uh, what else happened? The uh, the Browns upset the Bengals. I 24-3, the Bengals put on the most atrocious performance of the day. Joe Burrow goes 14 for 31 on completions for 82 yards. Joe Mixon rushes for 56 yards. And the leading wide receiver was Jamar Chase with 39 yards. The defense for the Browns was on point. Their defense actually, um, uh, gosh, how many yards did they give up? They did not give up many yards. But the leading fantasy performer for the Bengals was Joe Mixon with 10 points. So very poor performance. Sean Watson, ladies and gentlemen, um, 154 yards, a touchdown, a pick. Nick Chubb rushes for 106. Uh, gosh, I don't know. That was kind of a sloppy game. We'll touch uh, Another sloppy game was the Ravens and the Texans. The Ravens win 25-9. to Zay Flowers pops off for 17.7 fantasy points, which incorporated nine receptions for 78 yards. So Zay Flowers was an absolute beast. Odell caught two uh, passes for 37 yards in his return. Lamar having a very underwhelming day, 169 yards a pick and 38 yards rushing. J.K. Dobbins, though, tragically out for the year. I don't know, did he tear his... J.K. Dobbins tore something. Was it his Achilles? Was it a hamstring? He did something. J.K. Dobbins, your NFL career is probably over before it began. Very sad stuff for him. Another boring game, the Saints and the Titans. Titans kicker, Nick Folk, the leading fantasy point score for him. Chris Olave uh, and uh, Rashid Shahid, the two wide receivers for the Saints. Getting it done for them. Derek Carr goes for 305 yards, a touchdown, a pick. Jamal Williams runs for 45 yards, but it's Chris Olave with 112 yards on eight receptions, who was a stud. But the worst quarterback performance of the day, I would say Joe Burrow, who only threw for 84 yards or 82 yards. But Ryan Tannehill throws for 198 yards and three picks. Three picks on 16 for 34 completions. Just terrible performance from him. Titans are looking very bad this year. Poor DeAndre Hopkins. I don't know why DeAndre Hopkins would sign with the Titans. That was not a good idea. I'll tell you, a team that was looking good, the Falcons, man. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Ty Algier and Bashawn Robinson both looking tremendous. Uh Ty goes for two touchdowns on 75 yards rushing. Bijan, um, am I saying his name? Bijan? Bijan Robinson, uh, 27 yards in uh, receiving on six receptions, gets a touchdown, and also rushed uh, for 56 yards. Desmond Ritter goes for 115 yards and a touchdown. It was more getting done on the ground. As for Carolina, Bryce Young, 146 yards, a touchdown, two picks. Miles Sanders runs for 72 yards. Leading uh, wide receiver was actually the tight end with Hayden Hurst getting 41 yards and a touchdown on five completions. A team that was looking very dominant, I will say, was the Jaguars. Getting a, you know, it was a close one, I will say, actually. The, the Colts put up a fight. Anthony Richardson proving he is a starter quarterback. 223 yards, a touchdown, a pick. He also rushed for 40 yards and a touchdown. Michael Pittman uh, on eight receptions gets uh, 97 yards and a touchdown, but it's Jacksonville, ladies and gentlemen. Trevor Lawrence, 241 yards, a touch, two touchdowns, and a pick. 
Travis Etienne Jr. rushes for 77 yards and a touchdown. Tank Bigsby got a touchdown. Calvin Ridley went for 101 yards and a touchdown. Uh, Zay Jones, 55 yards and a touchdown. The uh, the Jaguars are going to be a problem. They're definitely going to be a problem. And as I mentioned on the last podcast with Dane, this is their division to lose. A dominant performance by the 49ers who blow out the Steelers 30-7, to which I thought was going to be the biggest win of the day. We'll get into the biggest win of the day in a second. But Brandon Ayuk with um, arguably one of the best fantasy performances of the day. 129 yards for two touchdowns receiving. Debo gets 55 yards and five receptions. Christian McCaffrey rushes for 152 yards and a touchdown. And uh, Brock Purdy goes for 220 yards and two touchdowns. Very good stuff from the 49ers. Steelers, kind of an underwhelming performance. Kenny Pickett, 232 yards, a touchdown, two picks. Najee Harris rushes for 31 yards. Nothing much there. Leading wide receiver was Allen Robinson with 64 yards. And uh, Pat Fairmuth did catch one pass for a touchdown before he got taken out to be evaluated for injury. Interesting stuff there. Uh, to round out our, uh, t- what was it, 12 o'clock? 12 o'clock games was the Cardinals and Commanders. Cardinals put up a fight, man. I'll give it to them. The Commanders had to earn this victory. The Arizona defense gets 20 points. Absolutely impressive stuff from them. They pick off Sam Howell ones. They force some fumbles. Good stuff from the Cardinals defense, but... Commanders are able to squeak it out. Josh Dobbs only throws for 132 yards. That's all he did. Just a very underwhelming game. One of those technical battles, if you will, on the football field. Commanders starting out 1-0. The Raiders and Broncos competing in a very close matchup. Definitely not the Broncos of last year. I'll give them that. Russell Wilson goes for 177 yards and two touchdowns. Cortland Sutton catching a touchdown. Good win for them, but I mean, Jacoby Myers, nine catches, 81 yards, and two touchdowns. Jacoby and Jimmy Garoppolo getting that New England connection. I don't think they played at the same time. I don't know if they did, but good stuff from them. Devontae not getting very involved, honestly. Devontae Adams catches six passes for 66 yards, but Jacoby Myers was the stud. He did get hit pretty hard in the fourth quarter. I don't know what happened to him. In my personal game of the week, the Dolphins beat the Chargers 36-34. Honestly, game of the week in my opinion so far. And in the most impressive fantasy performance, not only that you'll ever see, because, I mean, it's just another day at the office for Tyree Kill, but just the most impressive performance of week one. Tyree Kill goes for 44.5 fantasy points in a PPR league. Listen to these stats. 11 receptions, 215 yards, 2 touchdowns. He was unstoppable as Tua throws for 466 yards and three touchdowns. Did throw a pick, but it don't matter. Also, shout to Raheem Mostert running in a touchdown on 10 rushes for 37 yards. Wow, this was an impressive, impressive performance by the Dolphins coming out, getting a big week one victory. But I'll say the Chargers did not perform bad at all. Justin Herbert, 228 yards and a touchdown. Austin Eckler rushes for 117 yards and a touchdown. Uh, Kelly rushes for 91 yards and a touchdown. Herbert even rushed five times for 18 yards and a touchdown. Keenan Allen, the leading wide receiver, with 76 yards on six catches. Good stuff from Austin Eckler for um, Austin Eckler fantasy owners. He dropped a 26 bomb. 
Good stuff, man. Good stuff. Uh, what other game have I? Oh, I missed, I'm missing two games. Two more games for our little week one breakdown. The Rams beat the Seahawks 30-13. to And it's actually, um, oh, what's this guy's name? It's, it's like Paku Nakua. Wide receiver for the Rams, 21.9 fantasy points. He goes for 119 yards on 10 catches. Matthew Stafford was loving him. And speaking of Stafford, his big return goes for 334 yards on 24 completions. Good stuff for him. Cam Akers runs in a touchdown. And, um, oh, my gosh, Williams. Williams, what's, um, is it Keon Williams? Whoever whoever the Williams is for the um, the backup running back for the Rams. Ran for 52 yards and two touchdowns. It's killing me. I can't remember his name. Is it? Is it like Keelan? Is it Keon? I think it starts with a K. I can't recall. Also, um, uh, T. T. Atwell, 119 yards on six receptions for the Rams. Good performance by the Rams. Seahawks, man, just could not get it together. Tyler Lockett, um, disappoint me in fantasy. DK Metcalf was able to catch a touchdown. But Geno Smith, 112 yards, a touchdown. Kenneth Walker ran for 64 yards. Just. Zach Charbonnet, 11 yards rushing. I mean, the Seahawks just did not do much. And unfortunately for them, the Rams were able to take advantage of that. And the Rams of last year appear to be gone. And if they perform like they did today, once they get Cooper Cup back, this could be a team that comes to compete. I love it. I love it. And we'll end it out with our Sunday night football game. Oh, my goodness. I witnessed a massacre on TV. I didn't even watch the game. I just kept checking on my phone. But the Dallas Cowboys beat the New York Giants 40-0. to 40-0. Absolutely insane performance by the um, Cowboys. The Dallas defense gets 35 points in fantasy. I believe they had two touchdowns. It was, it was crazy. Tony Pollard getting it done, 70 yards, uh, rushing for two touchdowns. Uh, C.D. Lamb at 77 yards on four receptions. Dak didn't do much. It was pretty much just the defense just killing Killing the Giants. I mean, Graham Gano missed two field goals. Uh, what else? Uh, Daniel Jones actually got taken out in the third quarter, in the fourth quarter. 104 yards and two picks on 15 for 28 completions. Saquon only rushes for 51 yards. Uh, Darren Waller was a leading wide receiver. I shouldn't receiver. I should say not wide leading receiver with three catches for 36 yards. Wow. Dallas is here to compete. Dallas is here to compete. They put up the most dominant performance of week one, and they are in my team of the week as of right now, depending on how the Bills and Jets game just goes. Wow. So big upsets all around. But, man, man, 16, uh, 15 teams currently can now go undefeated. 15 can not. We'll see who the 16th team could be. Obviously, they won't. But that's just, it's always fun to think like, oh, my team won week one. We're going to win the Super Bowl. Not the case. The Vikings are going to rally and win the Super Bowl. You heard it here first. This is our year. It might not be our year. I won't lie. It was a really tough week one. I like to be optimistic. I like to ride with my Vikings. But clearly we need to do something in the three days we have to prepare. Holy crap, after today, it's two days until we can prepare because we play Thursday Night Football against the Eagles, so we have very minimal time to get stuff going, my goodness. Let me talk to you about my four fantasy teams, ladies and gentlemen, and um, uh, then we'll move on, but to round up my NFL talk, I mean, my Vikings lost, and I'm probably going to go one and three in fantasy in week one, so in my six-man all-star league, Tyreek Hill screwed me, ladies and gentlemen, he absolutely destroyed me, 
Um, my biggest, I'll say the team didn't do too, too bad. David Njoku, honestly, is probably getting cut from all my fantasy teams. He is just not a good backup, and clearly Deshaun does not like him. But I'm currently, I mean, I have Garrett Wilson, and my opponent has Stefan Diggs, and he's beaten me by 12 points. So unless Garrett Wilson can not only outscore Stefan Diggs, but get 12 points, I mean, it's going to be, it's almost impossible. I have a 15% win probability, but I'll ride with you, Garrett Wilson. I need you and A-Rod to put up some historic numbers. If he could drop a 40 bomb, I would very much love it. In my 12-man random league, I am probably going to win. I am up by 22 points. In my, I have T-Bass tonight, the Buffalo kicker, and my opponent has Brees Hall. So I think we're going to sneak out one win, which I'll take. I love it. My t- top performer was Justin Jefferson, who got 24 fantasy points. And uh, I think Jordan Addison is going to take my flex spot over Tyler Lockett, personally, because Jordan Addison actually got 16 fantasy points and caught a touchdown in his first game as a Viking. I love it. In my 10-man $20 buy-in league, I got blown out. I have the New York Jets defense tonight, but I'm down by freaking 27 points. So unless the New York Jets pull off a Cowboys defense move, I don't know what to say. T. Higgins didn't even catch a pass yesterday on eight targets. Uh, I mean, just an atrocious performance by the by the Bengals. I don't know if I should keep the players in or not, but hey, Chris McCaffrey got 25.9 points. I love you, Christian. You can stay in. And in my Cato Boys League, I lost 140 to 128. I just, uh, I had Tyreek Hill, but my opponent had Aaron Jones, Tony Pollard, to a tug of Iloa, dropping a lot of 20 bombs. It's unfortunate, but hey, that's how, that's the risk you do when you play fantasy football. You risk your mental health. You risk your joy for football when you, when you freaking engage in fantasy football. But I love it. Who who doesn't love? If you, I encourage everyone to play fantasy football. It really makes the games more fun when you're rooting for a certain player. But man, tough tough losses. Uh, going one and three most likely, and the Vikings losing. Wow, just just a rough week one. But you know what? It's just week one. I gotta remember that. We got a couple months of football left, and my luck is gonna turn around. Speaking of luck, you guys are lucky because you get to hear a surprise topic. I mean. I, uh, I used to do a surprise topic every single week, but um, I've kind of, it's kind of lacking last week. I mean, sometimes we have your surprise thing as a guest. Sometimes your surprise thing is football. But now that football's back, I can't do football every single week as a surprise topic. So that is why we do have a surprise topic today. And I'm going to take a quick break, and then I'm going to be back with that surprise topic. So stay tuned. It'll be no time for you. It'll be a bit for me. Stay tuned. And we are back. Hope everyone's doing good. And uh, yeah, let's just dive into the surprise topic of the episode. So I was recently at the library. That's right. I'm trying to get back into reading. Reading super good actually helps me fall asleep pretty well. Back when I was reading my Game of Thrones books. those, those are, Actually, I recommend the Game of Thrones books. Those are the Song of Ice and Fire series. Super good, but... I've been I've been staying up too late. I've just been on my phone watching YouTube, uh, playing Xbox, just being being up too late. So I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna go to the library. I'm gonna get a book, just something to fall asleep to. Nothing special. And I get this book called "More Unsolved Mysteries of American History from Jamestown to Jimmy Hoffa," and this book is written by Paul Aaron, who is award-winning reporter from the Virginia Gazette paper, and basically. There's 30 chapters to the book, 
and every chapter, it poses a different mystery of American history. Well, well, I just realized that rhymed, which is pretty cool. I don't know if that rhymes, actually, but... And basically, it just takes you through all these different conspiracies. I don't even know if you want to call them conspiracies, or mystery is probably the perfect word. And I figured that every single week on my Tuesday episode or Monday episode, when, whenever I record the episode, that I will read whatever f- that day's mystery is, and I'll give a little review of it. So um, to kick off this, I guess this could be a series, because if I read a chapter of this every day, it should take me about three weeks to read, so we'll see how long it lasts. But kicking us off, we have, Did St. Brendan Discover America? And you may be wondering, Zach, who, who is St. Brendan? Well, Without a doubt, let's dive right into this mystery. So, we're going to start our story back where it began. So, St. Brendan was running a monastery in Ireland when a visiting abbot told him about this voyage across the ocean that uh, he was going to embark on with a bunch of other explorers, monks, if you want to call it, that people of the monastery. Um, They were going to go to this place they heard about called the Promised Land of the Saints, and St. Brendan, being the adventurous man he was, decided to go. He wanted, he wanted to see this for himself, because who doesn't want to see the promised land of the saints? So some sometime in the middle of the 6th century, uh, they, they can't really date exactly when they went on this voyage, um, Brendan and a number of other monks, they set sail in a small little boat, um, just framed with wood, covered in oxide, and uh, yeah, they, uh, they went off on their adventure, and he kept track of everything. Uh, one island he said they visited was filled with giant white sheep, and another was covered with hymn-singing birds. Ooh, how fun. They found a huge pillar of crystal floating in the middle of the ocean, surrounded by pieces of marble, and a whole island was on fire, according to him. It was incredible that they were being pelted by hot rocks from this island. And uh, Brendan described it as being the edge of hell. He said they had reached the edge of hell since they were monasteries. They were God-fearing men. He said another island appeared rocky and black, and the monks went ashore to cook a meal. And as soon as they did, cauldrons began to boil, and the island started to move, and the monks scrambled back into the boat, and Brendan figured that the island was actually the ocean's largest fish. He He said there were also spacious and woody islands, and one with luxury colors and fruit unlike anything he had ever seen before. And finally, after seven years, the monks made it to the so-called promised land of the saints, where a young man told the monks that the land would be given to their successors. Brendan then returned to Ireland. He returned back to his monastery, and he wrote down his whole story. He kept track of it all and wrote it down in a famous, um, would you call it a book? Would you call it just a memoir or whatever? The Navigatio Sancte Brendani Albatis. It's just a basically a Latin manuscript by an anonymous author. And scholars dated this Navigato back to sometime after A.D. 800, which was at least 100 years after Brendan's death, judging by when he would have gone on the journey, came back and wrote the thing. The story was tremendously popular throughout the late Middle Ages, I mean, given, understandably, given its mix of maritime romance and Christian theology, which was very prolific at the time. 
Most modern scholars viewed this Navigato as a work of literature, though, not history. Brendan seemed to have more in common with King Arthur or Odysseus of Greek mythology than with an actual historical figure, um, but many place the work in a genre of early Irish literature known as Imrama, the, which is it, fantastic sea stories is what Imramas were. So Brendan's story fit in perfectly in that. But the key difference between his story, Brendan's, and an Imrama is that the Navigatuo contained navigational directions and a detailed description of the places that all the monks had visited. And by plotting their course on a map and comparing the descriptions to actual islands, historians thought to reconstruct Brendan's journey. And many concluded that the promised land of the saints was in North America. And if this was the case, Brendan would have reached America about a thousand years before Christopher Columbus. Dun, dun, dun. And that's just the opening. So, um, moving on, uh, among those who tracked Brendan's voyage was this man named Joffrey, Joffrey Ash, G-E-O-F-F-E-R-E-Y. Is that Joffrey? I believe that's Joffrey. Joffrey Ash in the 60s and Paul Chapman in the 1970s. Joffrey Ash was a medieval historian and Paul Chapman was a World War II navigator. Uh, He was very familiar with the North Atlantic uh, Territory. He used to ferry planes across the ocean, kick some Nazi butt. Paul's a good guy. So is Joffrey. And uh, some of the islands that uh, Brendan had described, they're fairly easy to identify, and most historians agreed that these islands were which. Um, the sheeps and the birds were most likely in the Faros, which is an archipelago in the North Atlantic, right between Scotland and Ireland. And even though the sheep weren't giant like Brendan described, and the birds weren't singing hymns, I mean, obviously there were both of those. So obviously he could have added some of his own elements to it, but... The birds and the sheep both checked out. And actually, Farios is um, Danish for sheep, and the island of Vagar, um, where they, they were on, is known for its different kinds of sheep, so that connects very well. The crystal pillar um, is theorized that it could have been an iceberg, so um, which would have been likely as the monks were headed north, and what could have been the marble they were describing could have just been patches of ice that have broken off from the iceberg. The hot rocks, you may wonder, molten slag from erupting volcanoes near Iceland. Um, according to some speculation from historians, uh, this would have been farther south near the Azores, but uh, both are, both are uh, areas of volcanic activity up in that region. The moving island, they believe, is a tall tale, but um, whales were common around the Faros area, so they could have saw a whale, and a whale would definitely match the description they gave. And they could have just lied and said they were on the back of one. Or they could have climbed on the back of one. Who knows? But that's probably, probably more doubtful. As um, but, but whales were much more prolific in the 7th century than they are today. Or even in the 60s or 70s when these uh, this was going on when they were trying to chart this journey. So uh, for Brendan enthusiasts, the story could be seen as confirmation that the monks were all in and throughout that area. So they actually did make the journey. Now, it does get a bit trickier to um, keep verifying the tale, as Brendan and his company drifted for 20 days, apparently. Um, Then they were swept west for another 40 days before they reached this large wooded island. And Paul Chapman concluded that this must have been the heavily forested Barbados. The uh, Barbados, of course, in that area, but would have been very much forested back in the day. Um, heading north from there, the fruit that they had mentioned could have been grapefruit, which was native to the Caribbean islands and was unknown in Europe at the time, as no one had been that way. 
And um, Joffrey Ash was less certain of all this, saying that um, only the effect of the whole passage is um, the West Indian. So they, he, he basically was saying that they, they did not make this journey. They went to the West Indies. But uh, Land of the Promised Saints is even more amorphous. Ooh, big word. There were another 40 days at sea, a number of those uh, recurring... Um, Something they it was more compared to biblical, like you know how they say like, oh Jesus spent forty days, forty nights. The Israelites spent forty days, forty nights. So Paul, Paul and Joffrey were both kind of thinking that it was more so of just biblical elements being thrown into Saint Brendan's story. From these theories, the the case was that the Navigato alone could not make the case for the Irish in America. That is what they were. That is what the two were drawing from all this. Um, there were no other uh, medieval Irish texts anywhere in North America at that time. Brendan had a minor role in the 9th century life of St. Machulis, which is another saint that wrote his own thing. It was a 10th century uh, thing called Life of St. Brendan. They both wrote one. And these texts were useful in confirming Brendan was a real person who was renowned for sea voyages, but neither offered any detail of the Navigato. Um, there were, however, three medieval texts that did place the Irish in North America. Surprisingly, these did not come from Ireland, but from Iceland. Hmm. For most of American history, historians treated the Icelandic sagas much as the Irish Irama, just as sort of a tale. I mean, they were ancient stories, like not quite as ancient as the Irish ones, but uh, inadmissible as historical, historical evidence. But all this changed when a Norwegian archaeologist called Helge Ingstad uncovered a North Spindle amid the remains of a village in northern Newfoundland. And this was the proof that they had been looking for that the Norse had indeed reached and settled in America hundreds of years before Columbus. Now, these Icelandic sagas, they told the stories of Eric the Red and Leif Erikson, other, if you've heard of them, famous famous Norseman, uh, but uh, not not Brendan of the Irish, per se, not Brendan or the Irish. Uh, yet the Irish did appear in three of the sagas, and each time they were in the so-called, in quotations, New World. In the saga of Eric the Red, the Norse reached America, they captured natives, taught them their language, and then the natives told the, told the Norse people about other people that had worn white clothes and marched with poles that had cloth attached to them, so the Norse who heard this, they, uh, according to the saga, they sounded a lot like a procession of Irish monks. And another saga mentioned a land west of the North Settlement in America, which some called Ireland the Great. And the third one had a lost Norseman wash up on um, American shores, where natives spoke a language that he thought sounded like that of the Irish. So all these just Norse, 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 Norse tales incorporating some Irish themes. And these stories do make a lot of sense in some way. The Norse knew well that the Irish monks were accomplished seamen, and the Irish had beaten them to the Faroes and Iceland and Greenland. But why not America? Hmm. Indeed, it was the North who the Norse. I can't say it. I was saying a good the Norse, N-O-R-S-E, the Northmen. It's like North, but it's like Norse. It's very interesting. 
They, uh, they pushed the Irish monks out of Iceland, perhaps prompting them to head west. This was sometime in the 9th century, which was too late for Brendan to be the first Irishman to reach America, but still well before Leif Erikson, even, let alone Columbus, many years before Columbus. Uh, there were a number of problems with this theory, however. First, the sagas were vague about the location of this so-called Ireland the Great that was mentioned in the second saga. And if the 9th century Irish monks headed west from Iceland, they would have come to Greenland before America, and they might very well have founded a colony there. Second point, there's no archaeological evidence that the Irish made it to America because no one has found an Irish equivalent of Ingstad's apparent Norse spindle. And uh, the third reason to disprove it was Leif Erikson in the North didn't reach America before the end of the 10th century, more than 100 years after the Irish monks had left Iceland. So either these monks had reached Old Testament-like ages or they had met some Native American women and abandoned their vows of chastity, per se, if you know what I'm getting at. Most modern historians, therefore, they would deny Brendan's claims. Even some of those who believe the Irish reached the West Indies weren't sure it was Brendan. But um, Ash writes, Over a period of two or three hundred years, many Irish monks besides Brendan actually made voyages. And as so often in legend-making, the most famous figure came to be credited with deeds not authentically his. Ash concludes that the Navigato was not so much the record of a specific voyage as an allogram of knowledge the Irish accumulated, not only from their own travels, but from studying traditions and legends from Plato's Atlantis to the Celtic Otherworld, per se. Samuel L. Elliot Morrison, the premier chronicler of the European voyages across the ocean, would grant neither Brendan nor any Irishman an American landing even in the West Indies. He said, we are not straining the evidence to conclude that Brendan sailed for several trips on the circuit of Hebrez, Shetlands, Faros, Iceland, possibly as far as Azores, but discovery of America, no. So he would, he would be willing to give him credit for a majority of places, but not for America. The imagination of certain modern writers, no whit less than that of the early storytellers, has brought Brendan to Newfoundland, the West Indies, Mexico, and even the Ohio River, Morrison continues. They do not even boggle at peppering the Antilles with Irish monasteries, which have disappeared or ascribing to Brendan's curé the speed and endurance of a clipper ship. To sum all that up, basically Morrison is saying that you cannot give him credit if there is no evidence. Now, even if there is a little evidence in such regions as Newfoundland and Iceland and Greenland, there is none for America. Tim Severn, a British explorer and writer, believed that Morrison was wrong, at least about the capabilities of the proclaimed boat they took. To prove this, Tim stitched together 49 oxides, stretched them over a wooden frame, put together a crew, and in May of 1976 set sail from West Ireland on a ship he called, ironically, Brendan, and reached the Faros in June in Iceland. And uh, I mean, in, he reached the Faros in June and Iceland in July. There he rested until May of 1977, when his, him and his crew headed west. Less than two months later, they reached Newfoundland. Now, the only difference was Severin had equipped his boat with a bit of modern equipment, which included a radio. But uh, the medieval equipment, such as the hides and the, um, that stuff, was very true. And the crew actually patched some leaks in the middle of the ocean. Uh, just to prove that it would happen in real life. The trip did not, of course, prove that the Irish monks had reached America, merely that it was technologically possible with the ship they had apparently made. The leather boat had some... F the leather boat, um, some had feared, would disintegrate in the, right off the coast, but it made it across the Atlantic Ocean. 
So the self-proclaimed boat, Brendan, had demonstrated that the voyage could be done, but in the final analysis, the only conclusive proof that it had done would be if an authentic relic from an early Irish visit is found one day on American soil. So the only way that these historians will prove that St. Brendan found it first is if they find an Irish relic. Now, I just want everyone to assume for a moment that Brendan had reached America, or as um, Geoffrey Ash said, that the Irish monks at least knew about America. The question would then arise, what did Columbus know about Brendan and the Irish? Because since the Navigato was so widely known, Christopher Columbus may very well have read it or have at least heard about it because a pre-1942 globe includes the Isle of St. Brendan in what could be constructed as the West Indies. Chapman believed Columbus followed Brendan's route and intentionally hid the fact so that he could claim the new world for Spain. Now, that does seem a stretch, especially since most of Columbus's biographers, including his own son, Ferdinand, and most recently Morrison, as I had just mentioned, um, maintained that the Admiral uh, Paul was uh, searching for a new route to Asia, not a new world. Um, indeed, even after Columbus reached America, he continued to describe it as an island or perhaps a peninsula off the Asian mainland. Still, even the most skeptical historians such as Morrison don't deny that Brendan may have been an inspiration and therefore in some sense a forerunner to later explorers, including Columbus. No, here is not a discovery of a new world, Morrison writes, but a captivating tale which led men of later centuries to sail into the unknown hoping to find Brendan's islands, confident that God would watch over them. If anyone wants to uh, investigate further on this, they can uh, read the Navigato Sancte Brendane Abatis. They can uh, read Geoffrey Ash's Land to the West, Samuel Elliott Morrison's The European Discovery of America, The Northern Voyages, Paul Chapman's The Man Who Led Columbus to America, or Tim Severin's The Brendan Voyage. Very interesting chapter, very interesting mystery if St. Brendan discovered America. Personally, to give my thoughts, it, if, if, I, if the Navigato is true, I, I easily think he could have found America. But judging from the route he took, there, there, it's, it's potential he may have landed more in, in the islands. Let me pull up a map. Okay, I have acquired a map. So if we're in Ireland right now, and they're sailing upwards towards, like, by Norway, Sweden, Finland, Iceland. Let's say they wrap around Iceland between that and Greenland, Denmark, which it's being called as. And it's coming back down. It's very well more likely that they could have discovered Canada before, like, the actual United States, which at the time would have been North America in general. So it is very tough to say, but just to say it, I think St. Brendan might have discovered America. I think if we're following his path, and I'm looking at this correctly, he wrapped around Iceland, past Greenland, and would have sailed directly if he went straight into North America. So I'm going to say St. Brendan did discover America after everything I just read to you. How do you guys feel? Let, let me know what you guys think. If you think St. Brendan discovered America... Some people have tried to disprove it. Some people have tried to prove it. But as for now, Christopher Columbus is still being credited as the man who discovered America. Or North America. I get America and North America all mixed up. I guess they're all in the same area. But yes, that was fun. I very much enjoyed it. It's, it's always like reading something new, sort of going over all the mysteries. 
But um, yes, that was your surprise topic for the week. I hope you were surprised. But it's time to jab you. It's time to jab you with your daily dose of UFC. As a UFC 293 went down this past Saturday, September 9th, in Sydney, New South Wales, Australia. Very good event. Interesting, uh, interesting stuff all around. I didn't necessarily. I went three and two on picks on the prelims. I did not, not do good. I think I went two and five on the prelims. So pretty brutal card overall. We're still uh, up all time in picks, but um. Man, let's dive into it. Let's give a little recap of all the fights. Um, kicking off the night, we had a welterweight contest between Kevin Josette and Kiefer Crosby. Uh, Kevin, native of Australia, Kiefer from uh, the same gym as Car McGregor. Kicking off a pretty, pretty even matchup throughout the first round. I mean, both on the feet, it looked like Kiefer was actually landing a bit more. But with uh, just under a minute left, um, Kevin was able to land a takedown, getting 45 seconds of control time, and cinched up a nasty rear naked chokehold, putting Kiefer out. Kevin gets a round one rear naked choke in four minutes and 49 seconds. Good job to Kevin, but Kiefer just left his neck wide open. There was just no shot that Kevin wasn't going to cinch it up and get the finish. Very good for the Australian crowd. Got him going early. Very much, uh, very much a good way to start the evening. Kevin improves to nine and two, and will most likely continue in his UFC journey. As for Kiefer, falls to ten and four. I don't know if they're going to bring him back. We shall see. We shall see. We went from the welterweight division to the featherweight division, and Gabriel Miranda, Gabriel Miranda, who had been coming off a brutal loss to Benoit Saint Denis over a year ago. Have been taking on Shane Young, who had been on a three-fight skid. And, man, the game plan was very straightforward for Gabriel Miranda. He took Shane Young down, he took his back, and he submitted him in 59 seconds. Rear naked chokehold as well. They're easy, easy money for Gabriel Miranda. I mean, just no opposition from Shane Young at all. And good win for Gabriel. And I had to give him a performance bonus. I mean, he didn't get one. They only gave out two. They've only been giving out two lately. But, hey, you get props from me, Gabriel. Gabriel Miranda improves to 1-1 one one in the UFC, 17-6 and six overall. As for Shane Young, he's now on a four-fight losing streak. Been finished in two of those. He'll probably be cut. Actually, 2-5 and five overall in the UFC, so not good at all. But, man, clearly Gabriel Miranda... Uh, belongs in the UFC, and now his only UFC loss is to Benoit Saint-Denis, who we know is an absolute killer in the UFC. So, good win for Gabriel. That got the night started off good. And then we ran into a very interesting scenario, which, uh, so, um, moving on to our next prelim in the welterweight division, uh, Blood Diamond took on Charles Radke, and a very lame round one, Charles landed a takedown, had almost Four minutes of control time. Uh, Blood Diamond, then in round two, we get uh, controlled for two and two minutes, 45 seconds more. Uh, looking a bit better on the feet. Round three, he would throw things together despite being controlled for three minutes. Would string together 42 total strikes to 20 in favor of Blood Diamond. He would lose a point, sadly, but, you know, that's just how it goes. Charles Radke gets the decision. He improves to eight and three. Blood Diamond falls to three and three professionally. Zero oh and three in the UFC. Blood Diamond will not be back in the UFC. Now, as for the post-fight interview, Charles Radke 
gets on the mic and basically calls the, I don't know why I'm saying basically, I'm not even going to sugarcoat it. He called the um, Australian crowd P-word, A-word, B-word, F-word, and not the F-U-C-K word, the F-word that you call gay people. He used a offensive slur in his post-fight interview and DC literally whipped the mic away from him, got right out of the octagon. It was like, Charles, what are you doing? And uh, they mentioned this to Dana in the post-fight, uh, in, in like the press conference afterwards. And Dana was like, look, he messed up. Charles did apologize. But these guys, they just went through hell fighting. They're going to be a bit amped up. So I do understand it, Charles. I'm glad you apologized. You can get easily canceled nowadays if you say that. And, um... You may think that's the last time we bring up that word tonight, the uh, F-A-G word, but it actually isn't. Someone else said it, which we'll talk about later. I, uh, an interesting night in uh, <laughs> New South Wales. <laughs> Let's move on to another prelim fight, this time in the lightweight division, between Nazareth Hakpasarat and Landon Kionez. Landon coming off this past um, season of the Ultimate Fighter between Chandler and McGregor. He unfortunately lost, but they gave him a chance here to step in on short notice to take on Nazareth Hakpasarat, UFC vet of uh, six years or so. And man, this was a close one. Uh, Nazareth gets a unanimous decision victory, 30-27 across the board. But man, Landon put up a fight. 171 significant strikes to 148 in favor of Nazareth. This was a bloody fight. Super entertaining. Good striking battle. Happy for both these guys. And, you know, Landon, he falls to 7-2-1 and one now. He unfortunately lost, but it proved he can hang with some of the best in the UFC. Nazrat, decent unranked lightweight. Now 2-0 and oh in his last two fights. A little win streak going on. And, uh, yeah, his, his last two losses were to Bobby Green and Dan Hooker. And before that, Drew Dober. So, he, he Nazrat's clearly fought some of the best. A little two-fight win streak now. We'll see what's next for him. And I mean, he could very well take on the guy who we're about to talk about next as another lightweight fight went to the unanimous decision as Jamie Mularke, Australia, Australian, Australian native, beats John Mac Desse, outboxes him through three rounds, most impressive in round number two, 37 significant strikes to 21, gets the unanimous decision 29-28 across the board. Good win for Jamie Mularke. He, uh... Coming off a big loss, this was a good bounce back win for him. He's now sitting at three and one his last four fights. As for John McDesse, on a little two fight losing streak, one and three his last four. It's uh, John McDesse probably gonna be taking on up and comer next, but I really like Nazrat Hakpasarat versus Jamie Malarkey as a potential fight to do next. So I say do that UFC. Moving on to uh, not the final prelim, but the second to last prelim. And this was supposed to be fight of the night potential, but um, it actually started out pretty good. But let's talk about it as Jack Jenkins took on Chepe Mariscal. And we start off round one, super good. Uh, both guys just standing there striking. Significant strikes 31 to 23 in favor of Jack. Total strikes 38 to 33 in favor of Chepe. Chepe getting about 27 seconds of control time just from holding him on the fence. Super competitive. I give Jack Jenkins round number one. Round two gets going. Chepe's landing a bit more. He actually landed a takedown. Two minutes and 19 seconds control time. But on a throw, um, just in the in the movement, it looked like Jack was about to get thrown by Chepe. Um, goes to put his arm out to stop himself from falling. 
and dislocates his elbow, I believe, in round number two. Literally just lays there. You can see the moment it pops out. Chepe gets the TKO by uh, technical injury in round number two. Very unfortunate result for Jack Jenkins, especially in his hometown. Home uh, country, I should say, of Australia. Man, I don't really count this as a loss for Jack. Personally, I mean, he got hurt. He was looking good. It was a close fight. But hey, here's what it is. Jack is now 2-1 in the UFC, but Chepe Mariscal, 2-0 in the UFC. Both wins now over Trevor Peak and Jack Jenkins. Chepe improves the 15-6-1. He's looking good, and he should be getting a very good uh, featherweight opponent next. I'd like to see him against someone like David Onama or like Sungwoo Choi, someone like those guys. Very good stuff from Chepe. Jack, I wish you a speedy recovery. Injuries suck, man, especially when it's to your arm. Oh, gosh, it, was, it looked painful. Moving into our final prelim of the night, super, super entertaining, as Carlos Ulbert took on Da Woon Jung, and oh my goodness, quite the fight. So, round one, Carlos drops Da Woon, I thought he was going to finish him, Da Woon's able to survive, makes it to round two, Carlos takes round one. Round two, another close round, Carlos outboxing him by just a bit, 24 strikes to 23, Dawoon hanging in there. I think Carlos was up two, heading into round number three. Dawoon Jung, though, and Carlos both landing takedowns. Carlos getting the advantage. And then with about 30, 20, 30, 40 seconds left, Carlos is in full mount on uh, Dawoon's back and has a rear naked chokehold locked up. And, um, yeah, just holding it in really tight. We're like, gosh, that's as tight as you get tap as you get tap. It makes it to the bell. That's that. Carlos Ulberg is going to win a unanimous decision. Good stuff. And then a UFC cameraman points out that Dawoon Jung actually tapped at the 11 seconds, 11 seconds until the bell rang at the 4 minute 49 second mark of round number 3. Okay, So what I'm saying is basically with 11 seconds left in the fight, Dawoon tapped. But no one saw it. Not even Herb Dean. Not even Carlos. He didn't even feel it. As uh, he had his rear naked chokehold strapped in. So Carlos Ulberg wins by rear naked choke in round number three. Four minutes, four nine second mark. But Dawoon Jung was tapping and Carlos Ulberg was still holding on. It must have been a horrifying experience for Dawoon Jung. I can't even imagine. Her- Herb didn't see it. It was not. It was no one's fault. Just an unfortunate situation. But my goodness. Just a. Oh, gosh, I feel for Dawoon. He's probably panicking, thinking he's going to die. But, man, he doesn't. He lives on. Dawoon Jung is sadly on a three-fight losing streak now. So, uh, I don't know what's going to be next for Dawoon. But as for Carlos Uberg, Carlos is now on a five-fight win streak. Four of those finishes. And he called out Dominic Reyes, who is currently ranked uh, number 13 in the men's light heavyweight division. I love it, Carlos. You should... um. Should should be back to fight pretty soon. I hope so. I mean, out of his last three, um, actually, out of his last four UFC fights, he's knocked down his opponent. So Carlos can swing, and Carlos can absolutely submit you. Good win for Carlos and Dawoon Jung. Just know I'm I'm here for you. That is absolutely horrifying that you were tapping and the the choke was still cinched in. He didn't even go asleep too. Good for Carlos. But without ado. 
Let's dive into the main card. It was a super interesting one, to say at least. I was actually at a party the whole night, so I was like half watching it. I basically pulled it out on my phone, and it just had it like on the counter with like a beverage in front of me, just holding it in my phone, and everyone kept crowding around me. It was, it was actually a super fun experience. If you ever want to be the that guy at a party, pull, pull out your phone and whip up UFC. Kicking off the night, we had a light heavyweight matchup between Tyson Pedro and Antoine Turkaljian. Tyson, um, a native of Australia, this was his home turf, and man, he wasted no time. Two minutes and 12 seconds in, he lands a punch to the head, puts him out, lands a couple follow-up punches, and that was that. Gets up, does a sick, like, sword celebration, and man, Tyson Pedro gets the win. Should have given him a performance bonus, personally, but is what it is. He is now 3-1 since his return after a four-year hiatus. And man, good stuff from Tyson. As for Anton, now on a 3-0-3 in the UFC, I, he'll probably get cut. Tough luck for Anton, but man, good win for Tyson Pedro in the light heavyweight division. I mean, he could fight Dawu Jug for all I care, or he could, I don't think, Carlos Ulberg is probably on the come up, but man, good win for Tyson Pedro. You could have him fight Ayan Kudalaba. You could have him fight maybe someone like... Gosh, who do we want to get out? Maybe Bogdan Guskov, who just fought? I don't know. A lot of options for uh, Tyson Pedro, but good win. I was very happy. The next fight up, man, I wanted to pick Justin Taffa. I had some outside forces telling me to pick Austin Lane, so I went with Austin Lane, but man, Justin, bad man, Taffa is a bad man. He knocks Austin Lane out in a minute and 22 seconds and gets the performance bonus. That is right. The Australian native gets it done. My goodness. Good job, Justin Taffa. In his last uh, four fights now, he has knocked out um, his opponent in round number one. The only time he hasn't was when Austin Lane poked him in the eye, so... Good win for you, Justin Taffa. I love it. As for Austin Lane, he is now um, an awkward 0-1 with a no contest in the UFC. Very odd. Hopefully they give him one more chance. But hey, it's just how it goes. Justin Taffa is a beast. We lo- I love Justin Taffa. Just his energy. I mean, his younger brother is super good too. So hey. And you know, honestly, Justin Taffa could be ranked in the bottom 15 come Tuesday. And as for who should be next for him, Rodrigo Nascimento, Marcos Rogero de Lima, have him fight Derek Lewis, have him fight Marcin Tibera, Jerzinho Rosenstruck, Alexander Romanov, have him fight anyone in the bottom 15. I want to see Justin Taffa be ranked. So I'm hoping Justin Taffa can get a ranked opponent after this. If not, who knows? But good win for you, Justin Taffa. Then next up, we had our fight of the night between number 10 ranked men's flyweight, Manel Cape and short notice Felipe Dos Santos. Felipe Dos Santos supposed to fight on a Dana White's Contender Series last week. Instead, got called up to fight Manel Cape. How about that? Super good fight. Super competitive. It is 29-28, 29-28, and 30-27 all in favor of Manel Cape. Round one, Manel actually dropped him in a super competitive striking battle. Felipe went 0 for 3 on takedowns as Manel outstrikes him 38-32. to Round two, another close striking battle. As Felipe goes 0 for 1 on takedowns, Manel outstrikes him 37 to 35. Round three comes around and Manel actually lands a takedown as Felipe fails to get one. 41 significant, uh, 39 significant strikes to 32 in favor of Manel Cape. The total significant strikes at the end of the fight, 112 on 61%. 
Land rate, Fermanel Cape and Felipe Dos Santos lands 99 at 32%. I mean, Felipe threw 310 total strikes. Not the best land rate, <laughs> like 30%, but man, Felipe Dos Santos clearly belongs in the UFC. And let's make Manel Cape versus Kai Kara France. They were chirping him. And uh, as I mentioned, someone else dropped the old FAG bomb, the old uh, anti-gay slur, and it was Manal Cape talking to Kai Karafrance. And DC was like, oh, I'm not getting caught at all. They, they almost got me with Charles Radke. They're not getting me here. And he whips the microphone away. But, you know, Manel went and apologized, said he loves gay people. And, um, yeah, you know, at least they didn't say the N-word. At, at least, you know, it's they, you got to be careful. When you're all amped up, you can't be saying slurs okay um charles radke manel cape take note from this so every fighter should take notes don't say offensive things after you pick up a big win but yes good win for manel cape he's on a four fight win streak now gets his first performance bonus in the ufc let's make him versus kai kara france who's currently ranked number five in the men's flyweight division i say make it a fight night i mean our last men's flyweight fight night between kai kara france and meryl bazi was a competitive fight very good i say we do that here as well I very much like that. I very much enjoy that. Let's move into our co-main event. We're just rolling right along. As Alexander Volkov beats Ty Tuivasa with a round two Ezekiel choke. Man, very tough for uh, the Australian fans. Ty Tuivasa, a legend of the Australian game. But Alexander Volkov had his number. I mean, round one, Alexander Volkov drops him. Uh, held significant strikes in 51 to 15. Just Ty was just not not on. Then in round number two, Ty like slipped. Volkov got on top. I mean, 54 total strikes to 14. Locks in his Ezekiel choke. They were both tired. He gets the gets gets the submission. I mean, he was on mount for an Ezekiel choke, and Ezekiel choke is basically you're on top mount and you're just squeezing their head. It is. Alexio Linick does it very well if you ever want to see clips of it. He's a, he used to fight in the UFC before he uh, retired, I believe, or got cut. I don't know, but man, oh man, it is a brutal, brutal submission. Uh, Alexander Volkov now improves to uh, 37 and 10. Wow, 47th professional fight, three away from 50, and he's only 34. Wow. Wow, incredible stuff from Alexander Volkov. Actually, how? Actually, yeah, he's only 34. Wow, incredible. Good job, Volk. Good job, Volkov. Uh, he's on a little three fight winning streak, all three of those finishes. And um, yeah, Alexander Volkov was currently ranked seven, just beat the number six guy. Gonna move up to six, but he's at an awkward spot, unfortunately, for Volkov. Um, he holds a loss to number five, Curtis Blades, and number four, Tom Aspinall. Uh, number one, Sergey Pavlovich, and number one, Shogun, are not going to be in a region for him to fight. So Volkov could be sitting out for a while. Unfortunately, he could potentially take on Halton Almeida if he beats Curtis Blades. Or if Curtis Blades beats Halton Almeida, you could do a rematch. So interesting stuff for Alexander Volkov. And as always, the Derek Lewis rematch will be there and will always be there. I want to see Derek Lewis and Alexander Volkov run it back, but good job for Volkov. As for Ty Tuivasa, man, three straight fights, been finished in rounds one, two, and three. It's um, it's tough going for Ty, but, you know, he went from fighting Stefan Struve, Harry Hunsucker, and Greg Hardy to fighting Cyril Gaunt, Sergey Pavlovich, and Alexander Volkov. So Ty Tuivasa now holds losses to 
the two guys tied for the number one spot and now the number six um, heavyweight. So it shouldn't get to tie too much. He's been there at a, in a three-fight drought. They just need to give him a pick-me-up fight, stop feeding him to up-and-comers, my goodness. So um, I would say uh, Tai Tuivasa versus Jarzinho Rosenstruck could be a very good fight to do next. And, I mean, you could even do him versus, uh, gosh, Marcin Tibera, just a pick-up fight for um, Tai Tuivasa. But good win for Volkov. I predicted it. And man, let me tell you, no one was predicting this. The main event, the biggest upset of the year. I wasn't even mad. I was so happy for it. But you know what? This brings me back to one of our segments that we do on this show called Loyal to the Belt. When you talk about are you loyal to a fighter to the belt? And just Adesanya during this fight camp was giving me all the reasons to hate him. Saying he loves China. Saying that he like did stuff to his dogs, he he like jerked off his dog or something. It was a very weird situation. Painting his nails, acting all feminine. I don't know if he was overconfident, if he thought he didn't need to prepare for this, but Sean Strickland prepared and Sean Strickland took over. Sean Strickland just became the first man in mixed martial arts to knock down Adi Sanya. Incredible performance from Sean Strickland. He wins the men's middleweight championship, the world middleweight championship of the UFC by unanimous decision, 49-46 across the board. He dropped out of Sonya with like 20 seconds left in round number one. He was already winning the round. He doubled his total strikes and significant strikes, and he didn't attempt a single takedown during the fight. Round two was the only round Sean Strickland lost, got outboxed by Adesanya, but round three competitive round Strickland gets the edge round four and five his most dominant rounds in round four he had a 60 percent land rate in round five a 50 percent striking land rate total strikes 137 to 94 same for significant strikes Sean Strickland is your new men's middleweight champion congratulations to Sean now on a little three fight win streak incredible stuff as for Adesanya now one in two his last three fights a lot of people are calling this the downfall of the last style bender. I don't know, man. I don't know. Sean Strickland just went from the number five contender who won a fight night over an unranked guy in July to legit being the now number five pound-for-pound fighter in the world, I'm pretty sure. I mean, Izzy was ranked number five, and he just beat it out of second. You got to put Sean Strickland in the men's pound-for-pound at number five. I just think so. Oh, man, just incredible stuff from Sean. Super happy for him. Man, what an upset. What an upset. This could be the downfall of Izzy, but we'll see. Dana wants a rematch immediately. I don't know how that will go, but um, Driscus Duplessis still waiting in the wings for a title shot. Jared Kanier wants a piece of that. And you've got Paulo Costa and Hamza Chimaya fighting soon. So we will see what happens. But I will personally say... I think you run it back or give Driscus Duplessis a title shot. There's that, but man, what a what an event. What a fun, what an upset. I love it. I love it, man. But uh, good job, good job to Sean Strickland. I'll give it to him. One of our most controversial champions to date. That's all. That's all, folks. That's all for UFC 293. That's all for our little surprise topic. Almost all for week one of NFL. We still have one more game tonight, but there's that. Um, Dan West Contender Series goes down tomorrow. Should be fun. 
And we look ahead to next Saturday's event, UFC Fight Night, Alexa Grasso versus Valentina Shevchenko, the rematch, hashtag UFC Noche, it's on Mexican Independence Day. The Women's Flyweight Championship is online in the main event. You also have Kevin Holland taking on Jack Della Maddalena. The young Raul Rosas Jr. is back. Fernando Padillo's back. Daniel Zaluber's back. You got a bunch of Mexican fighters ready to show off. Should be fun. We'll be covering that later in the week. Man, what an exciting episode. I had a lot of fun with this one. I enjoyed the surprise topic. I've been battling a sore throat, so talking for an hour and a half has definitely done me in, but hey, I'm here to tough it out. Um, Yeah, excited to watch the game tonight. Excited for the week ahead. And Sean Strickland is your new men's middleweight champion. I can't believe it. So, to leave you with that, St. Brendan might have dang well discovered North America. And I just can't go for the Sean Strickland. The Sean Strickland fight just has me completely. I can't even leave you with anything special. Just congratulations to Sean Strickland on beating one of the greatest middleweights of all time. Huge congratulations. Everyone have an amazing week. We'll be back with another episode later in the week. Hope you're all surprised. I hope you're all jabbed. And ladies and gentlemen, just just have a blessed week. Just God bless. Live it up. We'll be back with another episode of the Surprise Jab Podcast.